Yes. How do we start then? We should actually start with you saying how do we How start? do we start? Hello, welcome to the second Virtual Pair Programmers podcast, covering all things Java. I'm Richard Chesterwood, and here is... I'm Matt Greencroft. Hello, nice to speak to you again, Richard. <laughs> yeah. That doesn't, that doesn't sound genuine at all, <laughs> does it? <laughs> it, was, it was even worse than last week, I think. <laughs> Uh, so, what's happening in the world of Java, Matthew? Well, I know the big news <laughs> is, and I know it's big news because we were talking about it just before you pressed record, the, the big news is that yesterday the ballot review process started for the latest Java EE specification, Java EE 8. Wow, that's really exciting. Yeah, um, I'm not sure how exciting it is, but... Uh, do you want to talk a bit about, should we talk a bit about what's in Java 8 and whether we should be excited about it? Well, the last I looked was probably about three months ago. I do not keep my finger on the pulse of what's happening in Java EE. Uh, it's a very long and slow process. And I think even, I think un, un, unless you are a, probably a member of those committees, it, it's very difficult to track what they're doing and where they are in the process and I mean, for instance, do we know when this is due to be released? It's kind of hard to unpick all of that, isn't it? But the last time I looked, they were making noises that um, Java EE needs to be more relevant for um, modern development. So they were thinking mobile, they were thinking microservices, that kind of thing. And they were talking about removing things like JMS, the Java messaging uh, of messaging specification from the standard completely, which I thought was hilarious. Because <laughs> JMS can, can, can actually form the backbone of many modern microservice type systems. I mean, there, there are a lot of other things out there. There are a lot of alternatives. But to say that it's not modern and relevant is, is nonsense, really. But it seems they've gone back on that. We've had a look at what's due to be in. Yes, so it looks like JMS is still in. Basically everything. They're talking about removing some really horrible old dated stuff. EJB2 is finally going to be removed, which I can't believe anybody on the planet is using. <laughs> and there was a lot of Corba stuff, very legacy 1990s type stuff. We don't need to go into detail about what Corba is. I think we cover we must cover it somewhere. We certainly talk about Corba when we are first introducing the concept of an EJB. Yeah, um, we touch on it. We yeah. touch on it, yeah. So it's a very dated legacy way of working, really. So that's going to be removed. Other than that, it all looks like it's still in, including, interestingly, the MVC framework. So I'll confess, I was actually alerted to this because I'm working on Timeleaf, and the guys behind Timeleaf make a point of saying that when the MVC framework does come in, they expect Timeleaf to be made compatible with it. So you'll be able to use Timeleaf as an alternative to JSP, or possibly JSF, we might look into that, but as an alternative way of creating your views using Java EE. Um, but mm -hmm. the fact that the specification is coming close to... Uh, completion, if you mm -hmm. like, or approval. Yeah. Um, and there's a reference implementation available, we believe, isn't there? Glassfish oh, 5? Oh, sorry, I thought you were talking about MVC or. Uh, no, of, of, of Java EA. Of the whole Java EA. The reference but... implementation for MVC specifically, though, is called Ozark. Ozark. Have I pronounced that right? Who knows? It could be Ozark or. <laughs> Ozark. Uh, so you can, if, you, if you're interested in in learning this stuff early you can go and get the reference implementation now and start work on right. it today i guess the other providers of application servers i mean we use wildfly in the java email drills on our courses so wildfly is jboss isn't it so i guess jboss are not saying anything publicly at the moment about when they're going to create a java ee8 version of an application server right until it's actually finalised and they, I don't know, but I've not seen anything. Again, that's the kind of thing we don't keep our finger on the pulse of that because we've got lots of other stuff to do as well. So I don't know where Wild, Wild, Wildfly is. I don't know how long it will be before they release the Java E8. Right. I haven't got a clue at all. But I am interested in the MVC, I've got to say. Um, I know a lot of people are very dismissive isn't quite the right word, is it? Or just dismayed, really, that here in 2017, 
MVC is being added to Java EE. Now, MVC kind of has has a feel of being a bit old, a bit dated, and a bit. It's not something that we're excited about today. It's a, it's a solved problem. It's a long solved problem. Um, I. What do you think? Well, I guess it comes back to who uses Java EE as the basis, as the framework, if you like, for the applications and why. Mm-hmm. So, the fact that you you're using Java EE doesn't mean it is the only system within your uh, mm-hmm. architecture, does it? So it could well be that you are using Java EE as your base system, you're using mm-hmm. messaging as the principles, but actually your web front end might not be yeah, definitely. running JSF, for example. If so, you have a web front end. So, yes. yeah, and, and this is why, although I'm not a fan of Java EE, as you probably know, and I'm not, you know, certainly not a fan of JSF, the reason for Java EE's existence is if you're running a project and you decide for political reasons, for whatever, for safety reasons maybe, we want to be standards compliant. Now, Java EE isn't really a standard. It's a de facto standard. It's not, it's not a legal standard, is it? But it's the closest we have to a standard. If you adopt Java EE, what you're getting is the comfort that you know you're working to agreed standards and some module that you rely on isn't going to suddenly disappear. Their GitHub page vanishes and all that kind of thing. So you're, you're looking for the comfort of knowing that you've got a large set of agreed standards. And for me, it has been an absolute nonsense that never in all the years of Java EE's existence can you build a simple MVC front-end in a standards-compliant way? It's just not been there. And, okay, it's far too late, but thank goodness at least it's it's going in now. Mm. Um, so, I mean, this all goes back to struts. Struts is the reason for all of this. Do you want to expand on that comment? <laughs> so... Until Java EE 5, if you did want to build a, a Java web app, then you have servlets. That's the standard. That is a standard. And um, as you know, any, anybody who doesn't know, you can use our Java web development course where we talk about how servlets work. And servlets are neat in a way in that oh, oh, I will be pilloried for that. They're not neat at all. They're very ugly things. <laughs> but it's neat in a way that it's built into Java and they're very simple and straightforward, very easy to understand. I would say it would be a massive challenge, if not impossible, to build a real professional application using servlets alone. You need more stuff on top of servlets. In particular, I mean, the easiest thing to, 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 to grasp hold of is representation. Very simple requirement, any web application. You have a form. You fill in the values. Do you get any of the values wrong? Fundamental requirement is you've got to represent that form to the user with the values that were correct and allow them to correct their mistakes. Obviously, this is 101 stuff. Very simple. Nightmare to do with servlets. It would be horrendous. I've tried to do it in the past, but you just wouldn't want to do it. So that's where struts came in. So this is about a night... I can't remember now a very early 2000s framework that was built on top of servlets to fulfill that kind of need. Other things as well, but those kind of very basic requirements. The problem is, for whatever reason, struts never became standardized. It never became part of Java EE. It was always a an extra bolt-on that you had to put in. So already, if you've bought into Java EE, I want to have standards oh, now, now I've now got to go outside of Java EE and plug in another framework on top. Right. Which, you know, it's not a killer, but it's sort of going against the whole ethos of what you're doing. But, but presumably, the same thing would be true then of Prime Faces. That's a third-party framework. It's not part of the standard. And yet, yeah. I mean, when we get requests, because we've not done the module yet that covers JSF for Wildfly, Every time we get a request, it does say, and will yeah. you be covering, or a lot of them say, will you be covering prime faces? Yeah, it's a good point. Um, it's almost JS, so you're talking JSF here. Yes. So JSF is almost designed to be a, 
it's a component framework where you are you're invited to plug in third party okay. view components so that's kind of that's part of that model so okay. that, so that's fine well we'll come on to JSF in a minute so that sort of fits in so if you were a developer in I don't know 2004 or whatever there's, there's a real problem in Java in that you've got to go choose an MVC framework we've got our standard Java EE but it doesn't come with a framework for a very important part of the the stack so what do you do which do you choose? The struts, which is getting old and dated. So then every, every developer, every Java developer on the planet, I think, decided, I can do a better version of struts. So everybody did. So hundreds of them, thousands right. of them, probably. So everybody was faced with this huge, crippling dilemma of, which framework do we bet on? Which, you know, the point of Java EE was supposed to be, you don't have to make that decision. You get the full yes. stack. So that's where JSF comes in. In Java EE 5, the committee decided we're going to have a standard web framework. And this is where it went wrong, I think. They decided instead of going for the simple, instead of just fixing the, you know, the thing that 90% of web applications needed at the time was just a simple control layer, simple view framework to plug in on the top, they decide they they just went mad and completely over-engineered the whole thing. Oh, let's have a component framework, and you know components where you can put widgets on your page, and you know, great, <laughs> but not many projects really needed that. But they put it in, so it had the kitchen sink in it. And JSF was a way overcomplicated, and to do an MVC application in JSF was was like, you know, trying to turn a it just wasn't the right tool for that job. Yes. So there's been this... I'm rambling on a lot about this MVC stuff, but it's, it's something I feel quite passionate about, that it's never really been part of Java EE. And finally, finally, years and years later, when it's now become kind of irrelevant, yes. they've finally added it in. So if, if you were using a Java EE backend today and your project suddenly needs a web front-end that it's never needed before prior to MVC coming in, my guess is you're not going to go down the route of JSF. You're going to go down the route of some other web front end that can just yeah. communicate. As well, at first when JSF was added, the feeling was, this is a struts killer. Great, we've now got a standardized web layer in Java EE. And unfortunately, a lot, and I have real war stories about this and real project experience. A lot of projects went through the thought process of, oh, Java EE are telling us that JSF is the solution to this, therefore we must go and adopt it. And I worked with quite a lot of projects at the time, I'm talking about 2006, seven ish here, a lot of projects were, well, we have to do JSF. And they didn't realize that it wasn't the right tool for what they wanted, they just needed simple, yeah. simple controllers really. And uh, wow, a lot of projects got heavily burnt by that. I mean, years of reworking and backtracking and taking JSF back out. Right. Um, and of course, I mean, the reason why a lot of this is irrelevant now is that a lot of architectures are, you, your, your Java ends at the REST interface, and then you go and build your web front end in something completely different that's calling your backend Java. So it might be a JavaScript framework calling the backend Java. Yes. So that's why a lot of people are saying... MVC shouldn't be being added to Java EE because it's not needed, it's not relevant today. Well, I argue it is. There are a lot of projects out there who are doing M traditional MVC yes. just because it's not cool, it's not glamorous, it's being done, and this is at least a good thing for them. <laughs> I can't believe we spent like 20 minutes on Java and EE. Uh, for, for the people who are <laughs> listening out there, if there are any listeners, I'm really sorry you can't see Richard's face no. <laughs> that he makes when he tries to express his uh, displeasure with... Uh, yeah. yeah so. Well, it's for, the, it's for those kinds of reasons. I understand that for some projects, it is a great comfort to have a standard that you can work against. Mm. But my goodness, does it slow you down. I, all, of, all of these problems are long-solved problems. And, you know, when is Java EE 8 available sometime in the future? You know. It, again, it's, I mean, what I like this sort of question is if you, if you were starting a new project today, what technology would you choose? And, you know, if a bank or some major yeah. organization where the 
the, the integrity of its data as it passes through various systems is critical, came up and said, what would you use? Would you recommend? Is there any instance where you'd want to recommend Java EE? We'll edit the long silence out there. <laughs> I, I, w- I, I wouldn't because it, it, being an architect is always about trade-offs and you, need, you would need to know. I mean, I, I can't think through the requirements of this hypothetical bank. Obviously, when you think bank, you think conservative, stable, slow-moving, don't want to have big changes. So it does feel that Java EE is right for that kind of organization. But even then... I I think, again, that it's also, though, about you're buying an application... uh, The word's gone. Server, is it? Application. Application server from a supplier who will also provide you with support. And it means that if the system is meant to do something and as part of your coding you find it does not work, mm-hmm. you have recourse against somebody. Exactly. And I guess that to me would actually be what the big selling point absolutely. is. Absolutely, absolutely. And actually the traditional way to get around this is that, um, yeah, we have, a, we have an application server and we buy it from Oracle and we pay them and we, we're indemnified and all that kind of thing. But we can still load any jar files, with, any war files we like onto it. So we send Spring or something similar in as like a Trojan horse into it. That's the wrong word, actually, in this instance, isn't it? Because I had other cons, you know, but we, we slip in, we slip in Spring through a war file and just deploy it to an application server. <laughs> so we're not really using Java EE, but it looks like it from the outside. Yes. Interesting. So it's about politics, maybe, and corporate Yeah, so from a technical than, point of view. Yeah. So I think that is my point. You've struck on it brilliantly there. Java EE is not technically interesting because all these technologies exist. It's just an umbrella, really, for other Java libraries. And, you know, so we're, as a company, virtual pair programmers, we're not going to get excited about Java EE being released. In fact, it's a pain in the neck because we've got to go and record all of our old courses. <laughs> Even though they're probably all still technically valid and don't really need updating. But. Well, I guess until the major application servers start providing, or shipping rather, Java EE 8 versions, which there is no date for at all at the moment, mm-hmm. um, that at least is something we can put on hold for our workload. Yeah, um, but it's, it's worthwhile being aware of it. So, um, so from a business point of view, the big topic for us in the last couple of weeks has been... We've been talking about how we market ourselves, how we brand ourselves. And it's very difficult for our business because we have a lot of different types of customers. We've got a lot, we've got a wide library of courses covering Java EE, but also Mm. covering the kind of faster moving stuff. And we've often debated who are we, what's our message and who are we talking to? And are we talking to experienced contractors, people new to Java, people in the middle maybe? And I think we finally, finally have settled on a on a common message. Absolutely. And I, I've been reflecting, actually, that when people ask me, what do I do, for quite a few years <laughs> Yes, <now>, I often. <laughs> but for quite a few years now, I've been saying, I teach Java, because mm-hmm. it's a one line, it's yeah. easy. People, even if they're not programmers, at least have heard of Java, they get a sense of it. And actually, that isn't what we do. Absolutely. And it, it's not what we want to be doing. Um, yeah. And I'm trying to reflect on, well, again, it's, and it's exactly the same issue, isn't it? And yeah. Java is uh, it's a massively overloaded term. There's Java the language. There's Java the platform. And Java the language is not, I mean, it, it, it's an old language. It's dated. It's, it, if it were built a, today, it would look completely different. Uh, but that doesn't matter. You've got the whole Java ecosystem, which is an incredibly vibrant area to be working in, and that's where we're at. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I think you, you said to me uh, probably a week or so ago that if somebody wants to learn Java, they can do our Java fundamentals and our Java advanced courses, and they're pretty much there. Actually, yeah. that's not enough. And if you want to work as a developer where Java is 
one of the languages in your armor, because you mm -hmm. probably do need a bit more than just that one language. Actually, yes, it's about knowing the frameworks. It's about knowing a bit of architecture. It's about knowing a bit of front-end stuff. I mean, we've been talking about doing front-end in Java EE. When I first started as a developer, you do, we didn't do front-end work. We worked on back-end stuff. And yes. Other people did front-end. And there was this division between <clears throat> your skill sets. And I think... Today, I've still assumed that division exists, and it's obviously completely breaking down. I think possibly mobile development. So mm -hmm. developing apps is a separate skill set to yes. pretty much everything else. And we've seen that because certainly the Android courses we have, the, the we, we can see on the stats on our system that the people who watch those don't tend to watch the Java EEs, the Spring Boot type courses. Right. And the people who are focusing on Spring Boot or Java EE don't tend to watch Android. It is a different audience. I didn't... Other, that's very interesting. Good. So I think there is still a definite... App development is a separate niche mm -hmm. uh, skill set. But certainly, And presumably one that we won't go into any further. We've kind of done... I think, yeah, again, looking at... Well, looking at certainly the, the amount of time people spend watching different courses, it is the smallest part of our library. Mm -hmm. And, yes, it we, we get... I don't. I can't remember the last time. I'm going to regret saying this because we'll get loads now, but I can't remember the last time any of our customers asked us for further courses on app-related stuff. Great. Um, that's good. I feel... Yeah, I'm not. I'm not a fan of Android development, so that's that's not bothering me at all. But I feel it's an, a good thing that we've got it in the library. It's it's yes. rounding it out, and and you know, if I if I were a you know as a Spring developer, I would kind of I would feel a bit like I was missing something if I'd never written an Android app. Even if I you know just go and do a Hello World Android app, that's kind of enough to scratch that itch. I think. It's about being a professional developer. It's having knowledge and getting a sense of what's involved mm. without, you know, which actually allows you in a, a confident way to say, yeah, I have a, you know, I have an understanding of app development. And mm. if I need to do that, I wouldn't be starting from zero. Yeah. I'd, I'd be confident I could do it because I've got that overview. Yeah. Um, but it's almost professional knowledge you need rather than the... Yeah, that's a good point. I, I, I could imagine I would be maybe managing a team where I bring in some Android developers and the fact that... So I, I was the one who recorded our first Android course and I could do that because I knew enough about the basics and, and I was very comfortable at recording Android course one. When it came to the follow-on course, I knew that I was out of my depth. So you very kindly took over and did the second Android course. And so I watched that course and the, the message I took away from that was, wow, there are so many constraints and difficulties in building an Android app. You know, every time you rotate the device, you've then got a whole new set of problems. I was vaguely aware of this, but it was good to go through it and see. Mm. So if I were managing a team now, I would know not to be too hard on them when they haven't you know, delivered in a week or whatever. It helps me to get a better feel for... And I think that, you know, again, if you, it, the same sort of concept applies for if you were building a website and you're really working on the controllers and the services and the data layer and you've got a web designer that's going to come up with some nice web pages for you, it, there's a whole thing around responsiveness, around making it work on different platforms, around what happens if the user hasn't got JavaScript, all these things that go into front-end development mm -hmm. that is a specialism and you, you know that's why we have web de web developers if you like they're more than just designers they're thinking about that user interactivity but as a general developer working in the java ecosystem mm -hmm. a sort of an understanding of those kinds of issues is useful yeah. so the thing that we're, we're, we're scratching i mean we've always known this but it's about putting words around it it's about having a single sentence that we can tell people that we can have as a strap line on the front page of the website for a long time the front page of our website said be a better java developer well that's a really rubbish collection of words we're not as you've said we're not in that business we're about being a full stack developer and a good developer today, I'm just paraphrasing what you've just said there, a good developer today has to be comfortable really at every level of the stack 
to varying degrees, but you, you can't just say, well, I, I only write the Java code. I'm not interested in anything else. And I would say a good developer, and let's face it, all of our customers are good developers by definition, or they wouldn't be paying a subscription to a Java, to, to, oh, damn it, that's a software development training library. They're good developers. A good developer has got to be, has got to have a, an open perspective. They're happy to learn new frameworks, new techniques and languages. So it's not one language anymore. And a lo we've got a local recruitment company near to where we're based and that they described it nicely, I think, because some of their employers are looking for people with a modern Java skill set. And I like that phrase. I think it's it's about, yes, it's about the language, but it's also about the things you need to know that make that work, make you able to actually build production mm -hmm. quality, function applications that cover that full end-to-end -end process. Mm -hmm. um, and we have a customer who I've been talking to by email, actually, and he's been asking him, you know, what courses you should do to uh, cover certain things. And he's saying, look, there's a job application who I might want to apply for. And it's saying you need and then listing all these things. So there is, you know, for example, JPA is in there and Spring is in there. Interestingly, they list Oracle as a skill set. Mm -hmm. And I'm saying, well, Oracle's a back end. Once you've done JPA, actually, whether you're using Oracle or MySQL... Is there that much of a Well, I don't difference? know. They, they may well expect you to do the tasks that a DBA traditionally would have been expected to do. So they, they may well expect you to, I don't know, re-index tables or something like that. Right. So some, yeah, some... That's it. So that's, I'd not even thought about that. Which brings so. us into the whole, and, and again, we cover this in our library. We're, we're doing more and more DevOps um, material as well. Now, I know not every... Projects. In fact, I would say most projects aren't a DevOps shop, but the cutting edge ones are the ones who are who are who are the most effective are, and therefore the ones that our customers want to work for are very likely doing DevOps. Yeah. So it's not just the Java stack. You also need to have an awareness of how is this software going to be deployed, and and probably actually able to deploy it to real live hardware as well. Well, if you're working on a microservices framework, that's critical, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, the, absolutely. As soon as your yeah. build is, well, especially, yes, if you've got your continuous integration set up. Which you have. I'm passionate about this. We're starting to see now, I knew this would happen. We're starting to see the microservice backlash with war stories appearing on blogs and so on about how microservices destroyed our project. It was a terrible disaster for our project. And we knew that would happen. Uh, actually, to be fair, the, these reports have been coming for a couple of years now, but it, it's getting louder and louder. And it's obviously going to be the case. You're going to get a lot of projects who just chase the latest and greatest buzzwords or whatever dive into microservices, but they haven't got a continuous integration pipeline, for example. That would be the main thing, probably. And yet they think that adopting microservices is going to magically make them agile. <laughs> well, it isn't. If every time you build a, one of your microservices, you've got to manually deploy the thing, you're very quickly going to get paralyzed with hundreds of microservices being manually deployed. Yes. You've got to get the basics right. Um, and we're very clear about that on our microservice courses. Get that sorted before you start building microservices. I forgot the point now with my little rant. <laughs> um, I, well, we were talking about continuous integration and having having to have a knowledge of how to yeah. deploy something is important. Yeah. Um, and I, yeah, absolutely. So, so people, in order to be able to get the best jobs and to keep up to date with what's going on, yeah. need to have that more rounded sense of or, or rather that, yeah, the, the scope of what you need to know as a good developer has grown. Yep. And it's not now just about a programming language. It's about mm -hmm. the whole platform that sits on. Absolutely. Things that interact with it. Absolutely. So I wish there was a good name for the platform and the ecosystem around it. There was actually a single word for it. And I'm not aware of one. Full stack Java is the closest we've got. Yes. I think. And that's probably what we'll go with for the for the time being. But, it, but there must be a... 
Well, we'll have to come up with one. But so, the I mean, JVM platform, I suppose. But well, that opens another back can of worms because the JVM platform, of course, is then not just about Java. There are now obviously a number of other languages that you could be using. Yeah, but they run on the JVM. Yes. So, but they're not Java. So. But should a full stack Java developer have knowledge of some or how many of these other languages? Hmm. So, for example, I, I don't know if I've mentioned this in the first podcast or not, but you know, I've been looking at Clojure for a little while. You are a Clojure expert. I, <laughs> Matt is very modest and will never. I wouldn't go that far. I would. Um, but the uh, again, but you know, would you expect a Java programmer to know much Clojure? And interestingly, when you know, my feeling on this is that closure is not that widely used. Mm-hmm. Uh, there could be various reasons for that, but the it feels like the reason to learn closure is because it's actually a really good intellectual exercise. And that if you're a Java developer who can also do closure, it really puts you a level above because you have a first of all fundamentally really good understanding of not just object-orientated, but genuine functional programming. And it's such a different way of thinking that you, in in a way, it helps solidify what you can and can't do in Java and what things Java is good and not so good for. And even though you might never build a production system in Clojure, it, again, elevates your ability levels, I think. Absolutely. And again, if if you're working on a microservice architecture, then that's just perfect for things like... Because you don't... You, you can drop the notion of building an application in Clojure. It's more going to be, is Clojure a good fit for certain microservices in your system? And of course it will be. You know, you have another tool to work on. Yes. I, I guess where I haven't got my head around is building a full microservice though in Clojure. I mean, I, I, because, it in, because it's a JVM language... Bear in mind a microservice can be like eight lines of code. That's big enough to be a microservice. Yes, but so. the infrastructure to fit it in. So in order for it to be, um, you know, I can see that I could build a Java application that because of the interoperability between Java and Clojure, passes some data across to Clojure for it to run some functions against. I can see that. Send I haven't a got my head to around. A, you know, you can decouple them completely. You could have a, a Java service that fires off an event, something has happened maybe drop some data in a, in a shared storage somewhere, and then a closure service hooks into that event, fires off and starts running on its own instance, on its own machine. It's, 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 it's obviously doable, I guess. I'm just saying I haven't got my head around the structure of a closure application to make it monitor something or be triggered by something. That, oh, right. that, that I feel like it almost needs a framework. I mean, there's a framework for Clojure to do web development. It possibly needs some some add-on at the core. Well, it's obviously not part of, of the real core Clojure, which is just yeah. functional mm. in a programming. But yes, it's doable. So you're at that, you're clearly at that point in the learning curve with Clojure where you've got the fundamental language principles. Uh, I've seen you code in Clojure and you're very hot at it. Um <laughs> And you, you've got you've got into that functional way of thinking. It's it's lovely to see, but it's just about again. I'm just paraphrasing you. Really, it's right. Well, what tools are available to integrate that into the into in, into a system operationally? Yes, so you're, you're nearly there then. Yeah. So my take on it would be you don't have to be. I mean, there is a bit of bragging going on, isn't there? When we go to our coding meetups people are always dropping in oh yes i'm working on kotlin this week and oh you're kotlin oh have you not tried Ceylon? and there is definitely <laughs> a bit of gamesmanship going on and i would just think as a developer you mustn't be closed if i were interviewing that's often a good way of thinking about it if you were interviewing for a developer and you had a developer come in saying i'm a java developer and I'm not interested in any other languages. It's Java, 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 Java. Then they're clearly at a they're clearly a less good developer, unless we have any other information. I mean, they they, they could be um, what's he called James Gosling. Well, you know, assuming they're they, a regular developer, they could developer. be a concurrency expert. You know, they could have particular niches of expertise. yeah. Well, a concurrency expert who hasn't gone on to to learn some functional. To improve that, you know, yes. it, it would be very suspicious if you just say, 
So, and then developer two comes in and they say, no, I, I, I'm only skilled at Java. If you give me a whiteboard exercise to do, I'm going to do it in Java. But learning Clojure is on my to-do list or learning Scala or I'm going to buy a book next week on Kotlin and I'm just going to get a feel for it. It's about being open to it rather than actually having the skills. You can easily acquire the skills once you've opened your mind to them. So all you have to do is sign up to a library like Virtual Pair Programmers and, uh, and get them. Um, <laughs> that so, was a plug. Well so, done. <laughs> so that, that, that's the mindset for me, which is, you know, just absorb these things. And... It feels like you need to sort of pick the right ones. I mean, the, we went recently to a open day from a local, very big employer of IT people, and they talked about what technologies they use amongst their staff. And interestingly, they showed... I don't want to name them, but it was, a, it was an international broadcasting company. And okay. they showed a slide of, these are all the different languages we use, and a lot of them were JVM languages. But then they made a point that they are slimming that down, and they are, you know, yes, they're keeping Scala, but yeah. they're certainly Groovy was no longer one of their cores. Yes. And no problem with, as a, at an organisation level, Yes. maintaining a focus. I get that, but as a developer... Do you need a bit of everything rather than... No, I'm just saying be open to it. And oh, there's no problem. Okay. I mean, I'm the most cynical, miserable. You, you've heard me already on our... We're in our very early days of podcasting, and I've, I'm, I'm far more vocal about the things I hate than the things that I love. <laughs> and there would, I, I would have no problem with a, a developer coming into that interview saying, I hate Groovy. I think it's dreadful. As long as they can back it up yes. with, with reasons, if the reason is well, I do Java and I'm not interested in anything else and Groovy is a bit of a threat to me, then bad developer. Yes. But good developer is somebody who can say, well, Groovy is, let's say, it's too slow and, the, and, and, and they don't like dynamic typing. If they can justify it, no problem with that at all. Yes. I mean, I, there's a mindset thing going on here, though, because when you start something like Groovy, if that's the first language you're doing, having only ever done Java first, mm -hmm. there's always this sense of, wow, this is amazing. You mm -hmm. can do all this with such yeah. little effort. And if you don't get that sense out of it, then to me, and you know, that was the sense I got from Clojure. Yeah. Isn't this clever? You can write such little code and do all these amazing yeah. things. And to me, that the energy, if you like, you get from it, the enthusiasm is, is yeah. what's important. Yeah. Um, so where do we go then? What do we do next? So it, it's clearly um, clearly something we need to do. In that, yeah, we've got the frame, we've got plenty of frameworks, Spring and Hadoop, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. We've got the DevOps, good, good, good. We don't really have multiple languages, so we have got Groovy, of course. And you can talk about why did we do Groovy? Well, we, the reason I think we did Groovy was simply because. Our original website was built in Grails, mm. uh, which is a web framework for the Groovy language. Um, we, we can talk about the demise of Grails or otherwise at we'll, some point. Yeah, but, we'll keep that as a future podcast yeah. discussion, I think. But, you know, Groovy is, when it, and, I, and I came to this as a Java developer without a huge amount of, well, with no Groovy knowledge initially. Mm -hmm. And again, I got excited by the fact that you could do the stuff you could do in Groovy mm learnt it, you taught me part, I taught self-taught part, and then ended up writing the course. Yeah. Um, and I think it was that sense of, to be a good Java developer, Groovy helps, even if you're never going to write any Groovy code, having that knowledge of it shows you the constraints of Java and the, the pluses as yeah. well. So yeah. it, it gives you quite a good grounding. Um, it does, but perhaps it has now been superseded by other languages that have become popular since then. It's kind of difficult to put your finger on exactly what's wrong with Groovy, but certainly if I if I were picking my if I if I know Java and I was picking my next JVM language, it wouldn't be Groovy. No, the, the people I know who use it are using it as a prototyping language, so mm -hmm. they do something very quickly in Groovy, but just to prove a point, but they don't stick to it as the production mm -hmm. system. Mm -hmm. um, so, what would you pick? I would pick it probably any of the the other vibrant ones, and and the the leading ones are of course Clojure that you've mentioned, not used in production particularly much, but it, it as you've said, I brilliantly identified a great language to learn intellectually. Um, Scala has a lot of talk around it, and there's 
what I would probably think of as the middle ground language, which is Kotlin. We're hearing a lot about Kotlin at the minute. Do you want to? I actually haven't heard much about Kotlin. So, do you want to give us a bit of an overview of yeah. where Kotlin sits? Yeah, it, it it is. I would say at first glance, it feels very much like a simpler version of Scala. Now, Scala is a great language, no doubt about that. It is great. But I think anybody starting with Scala definitely gets a feeling that it's a, it's a very, what's the word? It, it, it has a feel of academia about it. It's very, uh, it's hard. I'm just going to keep Intellectually demanding? It's de very, very demanding. And all languages are, of course. But Scala is particularly, is particularly that way. With Kotlin... And bear in mind, I've done very little on Kotlin so far, but I'm looking forward to doing more. I have a very similar feeling to what you were talking about with, with Groovy, in that it's very light in terms of syntax. Your Hello World is, is much simpler than a Java Hello World. And all of the modern language features that you would expect in a modern, vibrant language are right there. And if I could be cruel, it's what Java would look like if they'd done what C Sharp had done, which is actively modify the language and keep it fresh and keep it current and keep it up to date. Um, now, obviously, on a podcast, it's not a very good medium for teaching Kotlin or, or telling you about Kotlin's features. But what I can say to anybody listening is if you just I don't have the URL, we will put the URL in the show notes. <laughs> um, but obviously, you can Google Kotlin. You go to the Kotlin homepage, they have got a, just a brilliant tutorial on there with an embedded compiler right there on the page. And you go through the examples and the code is written for you and you compile it on the fly and you can change it and modify it. And I would say within an hour of playing through that, you'll have got the syntax. You'll have got the feel for Kotlin. You'll yeah. be up and running basically. <clears throat> what's the use case for Kotlin? Because this is one of the things I've struggled with Clojure <coughs> is I can't come up with an example where I would absolutely say Clojure is the right tool for this particular job. Well, Kotlin is strongly typed for a start. So it's not like Groovy in that you don't have dynamic duct typing. Yeah. If anyone's confused by that, just check out Matt's Groovy course at <laughs> virtualpairprogrammers.com. This isn't meant to be a constant plug for our company, by the way. <laughs> but I genuinely think it's the best place to learn Groovy. Um, so, in other words, it, it, any use case that you have that you could satisfy with Java, you could satisfy perfectly well with Kotlin. It is not, there is no major um, um, philosophical shift it has functional features just like Java 8 has lambdas, but it isn't it doesn't have the feel of a functional language particularly. Right. It's it's OO as well, but um just as just as Scala does and just as Groovy does, if you want to write a class in Kotlin, it's far simpler, far quicker. You don't have to write get sets, for example. Right. Uh, you don't have to write an equals implementation. The equals operator, double equal, equal, works as you would expect it to work. <laughs> so it's things like that. I don't need to come up with a use case specifically. It's just any app that you would do in Java, you could do in Kotlin. My argument is you're going to develop it faster. Right. It's cleaner, simpler, more straightforward. And as usual with all the JVM languages, at runtime, a Java class... So the JVM looks identical to a Kotlin class, which looks identical to a Clojure class. So from a kind of runtime operational point of view, it's just it's just JVM, it's just JVM classes. So if I wanted to start a Spring Boot project, I know that I've never tried it, but I know you can develop Spring Boot with Groovy. Yeah. Can you develop Spring Boot with Kotlin? Good question. And I'm fairly certain that Spring 5 which I don't think is released yet, but we do need to do a feature on that. It's getting close, at least. Has now added Kotlin as right. one of its prime supported languages. As to, I mean, as you know, I'm not that interested in Android, but Android, uh, Kotlin is now an official language for Android as well. So it's one of oh, only three languages supported by Android. So That's there's C++, 
Java and Kotlin. Right. So I, I've got a feeling, actually, it's the Android area where Kotlin has, has really, you know, had a, that, that, that's where it's become popular and now right. other people like me are following along. So okay. I think Kotlin's very promising and uh, we will... So that, that, that's where we need to end this discussion, really. But we need to make a, dis, a, a decision. Are we going to support these languages? Are we going to cover them in our courses? Are we the right people to do it? It, it feels like that if what we're saying is people need an overview for that intellectual challenge and just that sense of it, then maybe that's the level we go to, at least for now. Yeah. Maybe we need a little section. We have these what we call our tracks on the website, such as Core Java is a track, and, sorry, a track, and Spring Framework is a track. Maybe we need a, an other JVM languages track. We can stick Groovy in there. Maybe do a, again, introductory closure, introductory Kotlin, just getting a sense of getting started. And then if the demand's there, we can always go further. Um, if not, then at least we are helping people get a more rounded knowledge, which I think is our, our goal, really, yeah. isn't it, to support people? Yeah, I think one of our problems historically has been whenever we've done a course, we've always wanted to do the full all singing, all dancing roller coaster of a course with absolutely everything in there. And that's paralysed us a little bit. And, yeah, we do, we do need to do smaller quick start courses yes and uh i i also think we we often wait until we've got some project experience before we and and sometimes these days because we are now busy running a business sometimes we have to force a requirement into our into our virtual pair programmers system and we, and, and we sort of use the technology that we know isn't right for virtual pair programmers but we need to test it ourselves so we put it in anyway then we get the experience, then we do the course on it, which is great. Uh, that's good for authenticity. We, we, we're talking real war stories. We've got real experience, but it doesn't half slow us down. Absolutely. And, you know, I mean, and I, for, for me doing this time leaf, it's taken me weeks and weeks and weeks because I, we had a need, actually, to build a new system oh, we have for a ourselves. Need. We have a need uh, for that. <laughs> to do with managing our accounting. We are Platform. desperate for time leaf and so but you know we needed so but i needed to build a new system anyway mm -hmm. so i was doing it in that and yes you you stumble across problems that take a while to work out yeah which is great in terms of what we need because when we come to then teach it we can say you're likely to encounter this this yeah, is what it definitely. means and and that's the key that's the real value it's where our value is without a doubt um so our microservices course, in particular, the deployment course, is, I mean, it is just riddled with real-life problems that are never mentioned in the books, but these are things that are, that's happened to us, and this is how you might get around it, and these are the trade-offs. So as a business, we must never lose sight of that, and we've got to keep doing that. Yeah. But I think there's nothing wrong with... See, if I can back up a little bit, we both have experience, you know, our background is training, and when I was a live trainer, the number of people I met who were professional trainers who would teach anything, they'd just set any gig going. So if I, if I said to one of those trainers, can you do a course on Kotlin next week, please? He'd just say, well, is there a book available on it? If there's a book available, I'll teach it. And I mean, that's why live training has such a bad name. I think we've all probably worked for companies where we're sent to a course and it's clear that trainer doesn't know the first thing about this subject. Yeah. They're one page ahead of you in the book, that's all. And throughout my training career, I've been terrified of, of ending up like that, and I've always avoided it. So I'd hate for a virtual pair programmes course to be we're just one page ahead in the book. But would I hate it? Actually, if we're honest about it, I think if we had a branding, if we had a, a, a track of courses where... We are, we're new to this, but let's give it a road test. Let's try this out. We could certainly do it with something like Kotlin, where you know, we're not going to probably give you war stories on how it is. And we can't necessarily recommend it for projects because we don't know yet. We haven't tried it. But let's go through the features and compare and contrast it. Yes. But it needs to be a, it needs to have a special. Yeah, we will come name. up with a, like a, this is a workshop rather than a course. We need something that separates yeah. it. Uh, I agree that you know part of what we are about is that we are we are being authentic in what we do. So we are absolutely not just reading a book, reading up on how to do it. 
even if it's a new topic, I mean, the Hadoop course is probably a good example. I knew no Hadoop before I started working on that course, but I probably spent the equivalent of three months full time mm-hmm. building different things in Hadoop to learn it. I yeah. wasn't just reading a book and regurgitating. So yeah. it, this won't be that because we, we haven't got, and especially if I take the closure example, I, there are things we could absolutely do. We, we have a lot of internal reports that analyze how, you know, how many videos are being watched, when they're being watched. Now, we could absolutely be building closure systems to feed that mm. data through, but there's no obvious need to because what we have works fine. So it, yeah. it's it's coming up with a with a with sort of compromise, I guess. But yeah, so but we're then we're certainly going to focus now on or try and move forward a bit more on coming up with the things that are, that developers need to be that genuine full stack developer. Or developer but we've always done that. Apart from we don't have many JVM languages, we've always been that from the start. Our first course was Spring. Yes, and okay. it's always been around that. In fact. Java Fundamentals was quite a late addition to the library. So this discussion really has been about how do we sell this to people? Yes. Somebody brand new to virtual paragraph programmers was think, oh, you do a Java course, do you? Which we don't. We do. Yes. We've got 250 hours. Is it? 250 hours. It's on, over that. Yes. I lose track of where we're up to. And like but... five hours of that is core Java. It's yeah. all, and, and, and that's very valuable. It's good for somebody getting started. Yes. But the real thing we should be selling is all of the stuff around it. Our, our customers get it. The people who are with us get it. It's yes. the new people we want to bring in. That's yeah. The, that's and the I, point. And I guess we want to be. We need to be the 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 most comprehensive, the largest online library of skills that Java developers need. To be Java full stack developers. Java, I can't even say that. <laughs> we need to cover the complete modern Java skill set. Yeah, that, that's it. Absolutely, I guess. <laughs> absolutely. So it's been quite. I get the sense it's been a been a slightly duller podcast this week. We were laughing and joking last week, and it's all got serious suddenly. Well, you started by asking what the news was. Maybe we'll start <laughs> the next one with a with a more light hearted question. But yeah, um, yeah so. It's been a bit of a different sort of set of topics as well, really. It's about where we're going as a company, about what's needed out there. So, yeah. So, I think over time, I hope we, we, I hope people are going to find this podcast valuable, and and I think over time we'll kind of find the right balance for what we're going to talk about. There isn't generally in a two week cycle. There isn't a lot of Java news as such. So. I think what kind of talking about what we're working on is probably going to give give us plenty of material. So just very quickly, you're working on Time Leaf, so which is... On Time Leaf. I'm about halfway through recorded on that. Obviously, there'll then be a process to edit that. So it's not going to be out within the next few days. I'm apologising. It it's will be a little pretty while. close, though, I think, uh, isn't it? I would hope... It's now the end... I was about to say by the end of the month. I've just realised it's the 31st of May. So I would hope middle of June, I'm probably targeting yeah. for that. Good, good. It is close. Um, I'm actually working at the moment on there's going to be a couple of what I hope are going to be really good worked exercises at the end one to take some HTML and CSS as though it's been given to you by a web designer mm-hmm. for you to integrate into your system and a second to convert from JSP to Timeleaf right. uh, which I think most people would probably not go through that last process but it's a great way of knowing you've really got to grips with mm-hmm. how Timeleaf differs how it works so that's what the bit of it I'm working on right now and then we might change this because we've just talked about closure, but I've got in my head, we need to relook at Java Web Development, which is our oldest course, maybe a little refresh. I feel like we need to do an hour on JSF, just something to touch so that we fill in the gap there. Uh, Richard is sticking his tongue out as I say that. Uh, but that's where I am. And then possibly it might be closure then next. Okay, that's bold. Um... <laughs> I can change my mind. <laughs> well, this is the problem. We've got far too many things. If we had a hundred trainers, we'd, we'd still not be able yeah. to cover it all. But I'd, I'd love to see your Apache Spark course because that is just right up your alley and it's just perfect for what you do. Uh, and I love Spark. I've done a little bit of work on Spark, and and I'm I'm not great with aggregations, and I, I never was very good with databases generally. I mean, it's not about databases, but you know, I could, I could, I was always rubbish at doing group by in SQL. <laughs> um, but that's the way your mind works. So, you Spark is going to be fantastic from you. Um, so, there's obviously decisions to make about what you do next. I'm still on Docker. That's going. How's that going? Very well so far. 
Now, the thing is with Docker, there's a million courses out there on Docker, you know, and Docker's not that hard, really. And I suspect, I have a feeling that a lot of our customers, a lot of our subscribers have probably already done Docker. So I have a bit of a difficulty there on, do I do this quick and dirty? Do I just do Docker 101? Which would be good. I mean, at least it would be quick and all the rest of it. But I think our customers probably want to see Docker 101, but then Docker tied into the kinds of things we've done on previous courses. So the microservice deployment course gives us a brilliant case study for Docker. So one of the selling points of Docker is the idea is instead of at the end of your build cycle, if you like, out pops a war file or a jar file, and then you go and deploy it. So I don't know, you might, certainly on the deployment course, we, we have a script to provision an instance and install all of the software onto that instance. And then the war file gets plopped on top. Well, with Docker, your unit of deployment is now a container. It's not a virtual machine, but you can think of it like that. It's a complete environment. So the developer is specifying as part of the build what software is going to be in this container and all the rest of it. And it's that that gets deployed. So that's massive benefits. It simplifies the deployment process. But it also means that locally, I mean, think, think about the traditional way of developing. You have to set up a local environment. I have to install my SQL or whatever database you're using. And I've got to, oh, my environment variables are wrong on this machine. And then you've got all that sorted and then you send it off for deployment and it doesn't run there because, well, that goes away because you just run a Docker container locally, exactly the same Docker container that you're going to be running in production. So it's all about bringing, it's DevOps again, it's about bringing the dev and the op closer together. Is, is running a Docker, I don't know if architecture is quite the right word though, just purely from a business point of view, is that also not more either cost effective because you're, you can run more microservices on fewer machines Absolutely. type things? So Absolutely. It makes sense from that side as well, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. definitely. So um, having a container gives you the isolation that on the microservice deployment course, to keep things simple more than anything, we deploy a microservice to a standalone EC2 instance, and that's the only service running on it. And that gives you a lot of isolation. But sure, you can achieve the same thing with containers. So you could have multiple containers on one instance, and that could well be a lot cheaper to run. So we'll look into those kinds of things. But actually, Docker goes even further than that. Uh, so there's things like Docker Swarm, which gives you orchestration as well. So for example, you can say this container needs to be deployed to three different physical instances. And if the CPU load on a particular instance is too high, then spin off another one. So it's doing the kinds of stuff that you could do with, EC, with, with Amazon Web Services. Yeah. You could use all of their tools and monitoring systems to do that. Or you could do it yourself using Docker. That's very attractive. Interesting, very interesting. <clears throat> and it's attractive because the last thing you want to do if you're using a platform like AWS is don't rely on AWS. Can you move your architecture to a different platform in a reasonable amount of time? If the answer to that is no, then you got a problem. So tools like Docker should help there. So interesting. So I want the course to cover all that kind of thing, and I'm quite well. I'm getting on with it. <laughs> when I we first started working together, I always used to ask you, Richard. So, how long will it be till this next course is released? And and I now get why you can't answer that question. And again, it's going back to if I answer that question with a date, I'll be doing half a job, and and that's not what we're about. So yeah, well, I did promise in the last podcast that I'd have Docker out in June, and I'm still going for that. It might well be it's Docker Module One, which will be the 101 version might not satisfy everybody, but at least it gets everybody to the same level. And then we can do a Docker 102 or whatever after that. But for me, the next course, I would like to be reactive, um, which I did want to talk about on this podcast, but we're well over time. I think it is time to wrap up. So we'll maybe defer that till the next podcast. Okay. 
Um, but what I want to say about Reactive is our course has already covered Reactive. We've just never mentioned it as a, as a specific term. Well, that's the spoiler for the next podcast. Yeah. In that case, we'll go into a bit more detail that about that next time. We're also planning to go to the Amazon Web Services Summit in London, but I think that's not before the next podcast. Is no, that's, I think it's month. about the 28th of June, that, so I've got it in my head. So it'd be quite good if somehow we could maybe do a podcast from the AWS conference. Well, if we want to find a room or something. It's in a massive arena type place. We must be able to find somewhere. It could be a somewhere. challenge, but we can, we might be able to do something. We can we're look all, into that. We're all about challenges. <laughs> challenges are the parents of solutions. Oh dear, <laughs> I think that is definitely time to finish. In that case, if we're going down that kind of route now, so definitely time to wrap up. If you've been listening, thank you for listening, and uh, thanks again. See you on the next one. See you on the next one. Now, what do we do? Cut. <laughs>